I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue as we are approaching a time in our service when we'll share the Lord's Supper together. I want us to uh, continue our study in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 because I think the more we understand the meaning of these Beatitudes, then the deeper we will understand the meaning of moments of worship like the Lord's Supper that we'll share together this morning. So I want us to just go right into it um, for the sake of time and begin with Matthew chapter 5. We will again start at the beginning of the chapter and read through uh, the verse that we come to as we're studying. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Matthew writes in this gospel and says, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. We, I want us to read it this way every week when we come together. I've heard a few people, and I didn't really intend this, but I thought, wow, that's great. I've heard a few, few people say, as we're doing this, it's helping me, and I want to memorize them. Like, I want to memorize all the Beatitudes. And so as we, that's why we're going to read all the way through every time we study. But we come this week to chapter 5, verse 5. The CSB, which is what I've given you here, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. This word humble is, again, another, another Greek word that is very difficult to express the full meaning of uh, in one English word. Uh, you may have a translation, if you're following along in your Bible, it may have the word meek or, or the word gentle uh, there. But that's a Greek word. That, that Greek word is pronounced praus, and it, and it communicates a mildness of disposition or a gentleness of spirit. Um, the word itself, I found it very interesting that out of this context was used, um, the way Jesus used it here is very specific, but other people would use it just in regular culture. Um, it was a word that sometimes described medicine, like a soothing medicine. Also, I found it very interesting that this is also a word that was sometimes used to describe a wild animal after it had been broken. Like a wild horse or an animal like that that had been trained and broken, this word would be used to describe an animal after it had been broken. So when we come to a word like this, we, to, to really try to figure out exactly what Jesus means and and exactly what that means. We want to look in other places to see, well, where, where else is that word used? And uh, Peter uses it in his letter, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, when he's uh, talking to women in the church. And he's warning them about the, the dangers of vanity and excess um, as a believer. And this is what he writes in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles, and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle 
and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So that word gentle there in verse 4 that Peter uses is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5 to describe the blessed. And we see Peter even says that a gentle spirit is something that is of great worth to God. It's valuable. But even more importantly, later on in Matthew's gospel, we read Jesus in the Beatitudes in chapter 5. In chapter 11 of Matthew, verse 29, he uses that same word again, but he's describing himself. When Jesus says in verse 29, take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So this gives us a little insight. Not only does Jesus use it to describe the people who are blessed as a part of his kingdom, he also uses the same word to describe himself. So remember the setting here. Jesus is on the side of a mountain. He's about to, to preach the sermon that is basically the, uh, the, the Magna Carta, you, you could say, of the kingdom that he's come to bring. We know the kind of Messiah that the Jews expected. And so as Jesus is beginning to unroll this description of the kingdom, it's, it's going very much against, you know, we've said already, it's sort of this upside down uh, view of what kind of kingdom they thought he was coming to bring. And when you think about the Jewish people, they have a history, like their whole history, if you read through the Old Testament and even presently as he's speaking to them in the New Testament, they have a history of being oppressed and conquered and ruled by other pagan nations, Right? We, we read that all throughout the Old Testament. They're constantly, and why are they being overtaken by these nations? Because they're disobedient to God. Because they break God's law, they wander away from him, they take their mind and their focus off of him, and they chase after other gods, and they chase after other things, and they set him aside, and God, as a part of his judgment over them, allows them to be ruled over and taken over by these pagan nations. And so there's a history, that, that's part of the Jewish history is that, that oppression and being ruled by other nations. And that's why they anticipate a Messiah so much because he's going to be the deliverer. He's going to be the one to free them from all of this. The Messiah is going to be a liberator in their mind. He's going to be the one to come in and now they're being ruled by the Romans. And they don't like the Romans, they hate the Romans. And they're waiting on the Messiah to come and he is going to rise up as a political military leader and he's going to lead the people in a revolution against Rome and he's going to free and liberate the Jewish people once and for all. And now here's the guy who they think might be the one and he says, blessed or happy are the meek, the gentle, the humble, the mild. It's, it seems with every one of these beatitudes, the more Jesus opens his mouth, the more confused the people would have been. Maybe even the more angry some of them might have become. Because what has he said so far? We're only three verses in. And what has he already said about the kingdom? The poor in spirit 
the ones who mourn and the ones who are meek and humble and gentle. That's not the kind of military Messiah that's supposed to be coming. That's not the one who's supposed to come and free us from Rome. Rome is not humble and gentle and meek and mild. We can't be that way. If we stay that way, we're just going to keep being ruled over. We're never going to be free. The world would think of, of meekness as being the person who's timid, spineless, unassertive, and easily dominated. That's what they would have thought when they heard that. Remember that picture of a broken animal? That's what they would have pictured. Not a kingdom that was going to rule and reign for eternity. And isn't that kind of what we think in our minds when we hear the word meek? Somebody who's timid, easily dominated, easily intimidated. But yet Jesus in Matthew 11 uses this word to describe himself. And I'm pretty sure that all of us knowing a bigger scope of the identity of Jesus know full well there's nothing timid or uh, unassertive or spineless about Jesus, right? So obviously what we think when we hear that word means something very different than what Jesus means when he uses it. So what is he talking about? I think the meekness that Jesus is talking about in this verse is both describes a a vertical, a a, a characteristic in the vertical relationship that we have with God, but then also a meekness in the horizontal relationships that we have with other people. So, So Jesus, when he says, blessed are the meek or blessed are the gentle for they will inherit the earth. There's a, there's a vertical nature to it and there's a horizontal nature. So I want us to think about for, for just a few minutes both of those. So let's think about the vertical nature of what does it mean to be gentle or meek before God. Um, and here is a definition I'm going to give you um, for you note takers out there. The meek are convinced of God's goodness and control so they trust all his ways without resistance. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are the meek. You say, well, who are the meek? Who are the gentle? They're the ones who are convinced that God is good and God is in control. Do you believe that God is good all the time? Amen. Amen. Do you believe that God is completely in control of all things? Yes. But do you trust all of his ways without resistance? There's the key. There's the key to to the meek that Jesus is talking about. The meek live by Romans 8.28. And what does Romans 8.28 say? It's not on the screen. We know that all things work together for the what? For the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So the ones who are called into relationship with God, there's a promise in Romans 8 that all things ultimately work together for good. The meek are the ones who believe that with all their hearts and they don't just believe it as a Bible verse or a principle, but they make decisions and they live their life based on their their trust and confidence that that is true. All things will work together for good. So I'm going to give you three characteristics. I I, want to try to be as practical as, 
as possible. I don't want this to be a, a philosophical series, but I want to give you things that, like, where we can take what Jesus is saying and say, okay, what does this mean? And how does this break down to apply in my life? Like, am I, do I have the characteristics of the blessed who are meek, as Jesus says in verse 5? So here's three characteristics from, from all of the, the study um, that I think we can say these three characteristics are true of those that Jesus is talking about here when he says blessed are the meek. Here's the first one. The meek don't panic but live with an abiding peace. You say, who are the people who characterize meekness? The way Jesus describes it, it's not weakness or, or being easily intimidated. They don't panic about things. They don't freak out about every little thing that happens in their life. And it's not because they don't care. It's because they have an abiding peace based on what we just said, that God is good and God is in control, so there's no reason for me to panic. Don't you know Christians like that? And be honest, don't, haven't you found yourself like getting mad or letting them get on your nerves sometimes? You, you see people who things are just like something's, something's awful, and everybody else, even within the church, everybody is, is real frantic and panicky. And they're just like, no, look, it's going to be okay. You're like, what do you mean it's going to be okay? We got to do something. And they're like, no, we're, it's going to be fine. You know why? Because God is always good and God is completely in control. There's, there's a confidence. They don't, they don't panic. Here's the second thing. The meek aren't anxious to force change by their own power, but trust God's purpose. They aren't anxious to force change by their own power, but trust God's purpose. Now, this begins to give us a little more picture of, of the ones, and, and we'll talk about this when we get to number three. I want you to think about how we see these things in the Gospels played out in the life of Jesus. I want to be real careful. I think and understand. I think there's a challenge with this one that the church, especially in this day, needs to take notice of, especially in the political atmosphere that we live in. The fact that elections are coming up, there is a sovereignty of God that is something that we need to always let be the foundation of everything that we do. I'm not saying that you shouldn't care about what happens, that we shouldn't care about what happens in politics. I am not saying you shouldn't, it shouldn't matter to you who's in office. I'm not saying any of those things. But if we as Christians in, in, in our country and in the political arena characterize, are characterized by, number one, the fact that we're panicking about the state of the world, and number two, that we're anxious to try to force change by our own power, then we're not really characteristic of what Jesus is talking about here. I think we need to calm down and really take hold of what this means. 
Be a part. Do what you've been given the right and the privilege to be able to do and do it with all your heart and use every resource you have available to yourselves, but don't freak out. Don't try to make things happen on your own without the hand of God because God has a purpose in all things. And it doesn't just apply to that in anything that's going on in our life. When we mess up, most of the time when I mess up is when I see a situation and a circumstance that I think needs to be different and rather than trusting the goodness and the control of God and hitting my knees and and giving giving all of my trust and my faith to him knowing that he's going to work things out exactly the way he wants to, I will start moving pieces around myself. I will start trying to make things happen the way I think they need to happen and that's when I mess things up. The meek are the ones who can calm, calmly, peacefully live in the confidence that God is good and God is in control all the time about everything. Here's the third one. The meek persevere through suffering because their obedience is more important than their circumstance. I know these are long definitions and I tried really hard to come up with nice little short preacher ways of of giving you these points, but I I just couldn't. I I, I wanted to be really clear. The meek persevere through suffering because their obedience is more important than their circumstances. If you've read the gospel, do you have any idea after reading the gospels how much suffering and opposition Jesus faced in his ministry? It's constant. And most of it was from the religious people. And then when he's brought before, when he's arrested under um, heinously false charges, people have lied about him and they drag him before the courts. Even when they come to the garden to take him, what does he do? Does he try to start a revolt? No. No. Because the, Jesus' obedience to the Father was more important than whatever circumstance he had to go through to make sure that he was obedient. He was meek before the Father. So this, I think, is, is a picture of the true character of meekness. And this, in by, in, by no means does this display weakness in a person, does it? Most of us are reading this going, wow, I wish I could do that better. I wish I had the strength to live my life this way. It's, it's, it, it, because it does require great strength to be able to live a life characteristic this way. But the great thing about it, guess what? You don't, you're not strong enough to do it. You'll never be strong enough to live a life this way. The only strength that you have or will ever have to be able to live a life this way is through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are the meek, because they're a part of the kingdom. We can't live this way on our own, because this is the opposite of the way we are as people. We panic about everything. And then when when things don't seem to change fast enough or go our way, then we'll start moving things around. We got to make it. We got to make it happen. We got to make things go the way we want it to. And then when we go through hard times, we, we, we quit. If something's too difficult, then we'll just stop. 
So it takes great strength, strength only given by the Holy Spirit for us to live this way. When we look at Jesus in the Gospels, and I, and I, I think about the garden too, do you, do you remember the account of them coming to the garden when Judas comes with the high priest and the, and the religious leaders and comes with the... Um, you, Matthew's gospel, if you, if you skip ahead and read in that, it, they came in a mob. They came to get Jesus in a mob and it said that they had swords and clubs with them when they came to arrest Jesus. Why, did, why would they do that? Because they expected a fight. They expected a battle. They expected all of Jesus' followers to be armed and ready because that's the idea of Messiah that they thought he was coming to sell himself as. And they thought we got to take him down because he's not really the Messiah, but he's not going to go down without a fight. And so they came with clubs and swords in a big mob to take Jesus. And what does Peter do on the other side? What does Peter do? Pulls out a sword, cuts the ear off the servant of the high priest. And what does Jesus do in the midst of all that chaos? He says, stop it. Peter, put your sword up. Because you live by that thing, you're going to die by it. And then when they came to take Jesus with their torches and their clubs and their swords and their big mob, what did Jesus do? The world would have seen that as weakness. Surrender, hey, I'm going to give up. But that wasn't what was happening, was it? Mm -mm. Jesus says, almost like the guy in the movies, you know, the guys in the movies who they say, ooh, this plan is going just according to plan. It's going just the way I wanted it to go. Jesus is like, yep, it's about time you guys showed up. This is exactly the way it's supposed to be. I have control and my father has control over everything that's going on right now. Like confidence, confidence in the goodness of the Father, confidence in the plan and the purpose of the Father in what he was about to walk through, which was going to be the, the worst human experience that anybody would ever go through. And he never ran away from it. He never tried to change it. And he wasn't, he, he didn't escape it. He was the example. Look again in 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at what Peter writes. And I love that Peter writes this in chapter 2 because Peter was the one in the garden who pulled out his sword and cut off the guy's ear and Jesus had to rebuke Peter for that. And so now as Peter's writing this letter in his, in his older age in, in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 21, he says, For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Look at verse 22 and 23. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, but when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to who? The one who judges justly. Jesus, even in his full humanity and even in his full deity, submitted himself to the authority and judgment of the Father. 
When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. He didn't warn them of what he could do. And Jesus, rest assured, Jesus could have handled the situation had he wanted to. Jesus had all power to take every one of them out in that moment had he chosen to. Had that been the purpose of the Father. If that was the kind of kingdom he was coming to bring, he had every bit of power to do it that way. But that's not what he did. Peter says he set the example. Peter learned that lesson in that moment and writes about it there. If we look at Jesus' final hours, we see all of these characteristics in him. Uh, John MacArthur said, the one who always had the perfect defense never defended himself. Think about that. The only one who had the perfect defense never used it. Never defended himself. Why? Because he was confident in the plan of the Father and he knew what was coming later. You say, how was Jesus able to endure without wanting to stop it? Without wanting to, to fight back? How could he do it with such calm? Because he had such confidence in the Father and he had such joy for it. What does Hebrews chapter 12 two say? It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and the suffering and the shame. This is meekness. This is what this word means as Jesus is, is portraying this in these last hours. He's, he's obedient to the Father. He's not fighting back. He's not panicking. But it's because he trusts the Father and he knows what the plan is. And he knows that there's something coming better. So we have to consider how this is shown in the life of someone who follows Jesus today. Meekness is literally the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It's the opposite of violence and vengeance. And you say, well, well Eric, you, that just sounds like we're just all supposed to be a bunch of sissies that just let people walk all over us all the time. Is that what you're saying? Like there's no... There's no vengeance. There's never, never any fighting back. We're not supposed to be, we're not supposed to assert ourselves ever. Like, is that what you're saying? Yes and no. I think the importance here of understanding what does Jesus mean is to know not just what meekness is and how it looks in our life, but what's the motivation behind it? Like, what empowers meekness in us? Because what you're thinking and what a lot of people are thinking is a cowardice that is based on insecurity, right? That's based on weakness, lack of strength, not knowing what to do. I mean, I get that way. Don't, don't we do that? Isn't that kind of how we retreat when we're just like, oh, well, I don't really know what to do. I don't feel like I, I, I can, I, I feel inferior, Right? And so because we feel inferior, we'll just, well, just let it and let people walk all over us. That's all, that kind of, that, that perspective of it is all founded in weakness. And that is not Jesus. 
Remember, all the Beatitudes are tied together, so we understand one of them in, in the context of what all of them mean. And here's a point that might help us understand not just what meekness looks like, but where does meekness come from? I think it's the thing we have to walk away knowing and being sure of. Not just what it looks like, but where does it come from? Where poverty of spirit is rooted in our inferiority, meekness is rooted in God's supremacy. Now, this is a little bit of a contrast with, these, with the first two Beatitudes. The heart of being poor in spirit and the heart of, of the ones who mourn is a realization of how inferior we are before God. Like, that, that's the heart of, of how we express and live in those first two Beatitudes. But this third one is a little bit different. We're not, we don't display a meekness that comes from the fact that we are inferior. The meekness that Jesus is talking about is a calm, a gentleness that comes from the knowledge of just how supreme and great God is. The focus of this one and the root of it kind of shifts away from not, not who we are so much in light of God, but kind of the opposite, how, who is God compared to us you see the difference so meekness the way Jesus is living it and describing it is not powered by a feeling of inferiority within us it's powered by a knowledge and a confidence of the supremacy of God that's outside of us does that make sense maybe kinda I see a few people like that's the heart that we we're able to live out lives of gentleness and meekness before God and before men because we're confident in who he is. Hebrews chapter 10, I want to read these verses to you. I think this will help you understand. Hebrews 10 verses 33 through 36 says this. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that, look, you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. Verse 35, so don't throw away your confidence, which, is a great, which has a great reward, for you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. The writer of Hebrews says, don't throw away your confidence, but it's confidence that gives you the strength to be able to endure. Not confidence in yourself, because you're inferior to be able to do all these things. The confidence is in the superiority of God. His plan, his purpose, and, and his ending that he has already written, verse 36, after you have done God's will, will, you may receive what was promised. So what is the promise? Jesus tells us there's a promise tied to every beatitude. Blessed are the meek and the gentle, for they will what? Inherit the earth. Do you know what an inheritance is? It's something that we're, that we're given. It's a, an inheritance is a portion of what is owned that is given 
to another person. And the, and the person that an inheritance is given to is an heir. So Jesus says the meek will be heirs with God, which is what scripture tells us, and we will inherit the earth. You say, well, what does he mean by the earth? He means the earth. Every, like all of it. It's not that the meek are called to passively let the world walk all over them for the sake of virtue. It's more that the meek are strong and secure in who they know God is and they trust his power and they know what waits for them at the end. When I know who God is and I know what's waiting for me in the end and what my inheritance is, I don't have to panic about the stuff of the world. I don't have to freak out about it. I don't have to try to change it and orchestrate it and get outside of God and try to do things and make it look. I don't have to do that because he's got it. He's got it under control. And in the end, whatever it is that I'm trying to, I'm trying to gain or put together, in the end, he's going to make all of it the way it was supposed to be from the start. And then he's going to give it to us. <laughs> he's going to give it to us. It's our inheritance in him. The whole world. The new heaven, the new earth. Not a broken earth full of sin and corruption and, and death and pain and sorrow. Not that earth. It, like This isn't an earth I would really be fired up about inheriting. Would you? Would you want to inherit this mess? No. But this is not the earth that we're going to inherit. We're going to inherit a new earth earth where all of the all of the sin that breaks everything is gone and here's what I think Jesus is trying to say to that group of people that that group on the mountain who is wanting him to just take over everything forcefully the meek don't chase after and hold tightly to the things of this earth because they know that they will inherit everything in the end when the king gives it to them. This just really speaks to me. I don't, I don't, I don't have to chase after stuff the way the rest of the world does. You and I don't have to chase after those things. We don't have to try to grab hold of these earthly things and hold on to them tight and by golly, if somebody tries to take this away from me, they, they're going to have a fight on their hands. Like, I don't have to do that. Because Jesus says the ones who are meek, he's saying this in the middle of a culture where there are people who are wanting to take back their freedom. Like, take over, rule. And Jesus is saying, those aren't the ones who are going into the kingdom. The ones who go into the kingdom are the meek, the gentle. And their reward for their gentleness and their meekness is that they're going to be, they're going to inherit everything in the end. You don't have to chase it. You don't have to hang on tightly to it. We can endure with the end in sight. Amen. Does this make sense? Like this one just really blesses my heart. I'm just so encouraged by it. Because it's all about knowing whose we are and, and, where, and what the end of the story is. And what's waiting for us. And it's a promise. That inheritance is a promise. And God doesn't break his promises. 
I want to end as we transition into our Lord's Supper time. I want to end uh, with reading a, a rather a lengthier passage from Psalm 37. If you, if you have your Bible and you want to flip over to the Psalms, find Psalm 37. There are a lot of scholars, and as I was reading and studying, um, so many go back to Psalm 37. And they believe that even when Jesus was preaching, he said, blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. He's actually quoting part of this psalm. He's actually quoting a line. You'll find it. You, we'll read it and you'll see. And, they, and many scholars believe that Jesus was directly going back to Psalm 37 when he used this in his beatitude. So I want us to read. This is Psalm 37 is a picture of, of what this beatitude means. This is just a beautiful, beautiful representation of this, and as and as after we read this, we're going to pray. We're going to have our invitation time, and then after that, uh, we're going to go into the Lord's Supper. But if you'll follow with me, Psalm thirty-seven, starting in verse one. Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong, for they will wither quickly like grass, and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord. And do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord. And he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Making your righteousness shine like the dawn. Your justice like the noonday. Be silent before the Lord. And wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. For evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while, and the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he will not be there. But the humble, look at verse 11, but the humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. The wicked person schemes against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at them. The Lord laughs at him because he sees that his day is coming. <laughs> 